Yeah. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and there is a version Bible app available for this. Matthew 26, we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 46 in a few moments here, uh, reading about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want to ask you, do you ever worry? Are you the kind of person that is worried about something even right now? And you might be saying to me, well, Pastor Steve, what kind of question is that? Uh, everyone worries. Who doesn't worry? Well, there are a lot of people who don't admit that they worry, and there are sometimes we don't admit to ourselves that we're worried about certain things, but everyone worries. I'll give you a couple examples. You know, that guy that is really angry because of what he sees on the news or what he reads in social media, uh, he, he's that dad who's just so upset about all this stuff going on in our world, and if he really digs down through that, he's going to discover there's an element of worry that his children are growing up in a world that's like this. And all that anger, uh, something underneath it is this thing called worry. Another example, there's that person who in the morning as they're getting dressed, they take a look in the mirror and they fix their hair and then they go back to the mirror 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 over and over and over again, more times than they know that they should do it and they still aren't happy with what they see. And part of what's going on there, you probably never thought of it, but part of it's worry. It's worry that they will not measure up to some artificial norm that society has caused them to feel is how they should look and what will people think if I don't look the way I should look. Worry is part of that problem. I know someone who has repeatedly told me she never worries. I never worry, Pastor. I never worry. And uh, her biggest worry might be that she's worried that her pastor thinks she will worry. That's because she tells me so often that she never worries. We worry. It's just part of our nature. We shouldn't. And really, if we're trusting in Christ, we absolutely don't need to worry. You don't need to worry if you're trusting in Christ. And I say that because he's ready, willing, and able to help you out. And that phrase, ready, willing, and able, it kind of sounds trivial. It sounds like something a puppy would be. That puppy's ready, willing, and able to help you out. But that phrase is really old. In fact, I found that phrase dating back to the Jacobite Rebellion, back to the 1700s in England. A guy who was going to die, he was going to be killed, executed, uh, was talking about being ready, willing, and able as uh, he was trusting in God. Yeah. You see, God is ready to help you. He always has been. And he is willing to be there for you and to help you. He always has been. And he's able to do it. He always has been. And communion represents that very reality. Communion is... Something that tells us that whatever it is that you're facing, whatever is troubling you, whatever is worrying you, whatever is distracting you from living life to the fullest because it, your mind tends to obsess on it, communion tells you, God's got this. Well, there's a cliche, right? God's got this. It is a cliche, but that doesn't mean it's not true. There are a lot of things. The world your children are growing up in can be worrisome. And the way that you look when you see yourself in the mirror can be cause for concern. Or even, what are people thinking about me? That can worry you. But communion says, don't worry. God's got this. You can trust Jesus with everything. With everything. Communion takes us back to the upper room and then to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prepared to face what was ahead of him. Jesus willing to stand for us, to die for us, 
Jesus able to save us? Have you ever seen a war movie, a military movie, where the paratroopers, the paratroopers are in the back of the aircraft, you know? And they're all sitting there, they're lined up, they have all their gear on, they have their guns with them, and they're all ready, and they're all sitting there, and they're kind of like just looking down at their shoes or down at the floor, and, you know, the, the door opens, and a guy says, okay, we're ready to go, you know, that, that moment of preparation, this, this sounds a little strange probably to you, but when I think of that moment of, of, of preparation, I think of these verses of Jesus being in the garden, because this is that moment when he stands and leaves the safety and plunges into the cross and all that it entails. And so he's not sitting there with his rifle and his parachute on and looking at the floor. He's kneeling in the garden and he's talking to his father about the jump that is ahead of him. I want you to read these 11 verses silently as I read them out loud. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell down with his face on the ground and prayed. Father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men, could not you men, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went a second time and prayed, my father, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he found them, again found them, sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay, I want to say it to you again. Whatever you're going through, You can trust Jesus. He is ready to help you no matter what the situation. He is willing to help you no matter what the cost. And he is able to help you. In fact, he alone is able to help you. His readiness, actually, was established before the foundation of the world. You've all felt that kind of whiff of panic when you're not ready for something. All right, class, everybody, get out your notepads, get out a piece of paper. Put your name at the top and number one through 10 down the side. We're going to have a pop quiz, 10 questions. Are you ready? (laughs) Are you ready? The very definition of a pop quiz is I'm not ready, (laughs) right? Yeah, but Jesus is ready. He's always prepared. He has a plan. In fact, the Bible teaches that the redemptive plan of Christ has been in place since the beginning. For example, a chapter earlier than this, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is speaking, he's talking about the judgment. And he says these words, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, and look at those next few words, since the creation of the world. It's a kingdom prepared for us in advance. 
since the creation of the world. You see his readiness there. You see his preparedness in places like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where the scripture says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I think it's pretty safe to say that God's redemptive plan has been in play from eternity past. The Savior is always prepared. And the Savior is willing. His willingness has really never been in question. Well, for some it may be. Some get confused when they read verse 39 from our passage. Look at it. Read it with me. Follow along silently as I read it. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. You know that Muslims don't believe that Jesus died on the cross, right? One of the theories that they have is they suggest that his body was swapped for the body of Judas Iscariot. And that Judas died. He didn't die. They stand on this, ironically, because of their great respect and high regard for Jesus as a prophet, as a man of God who preached the one true God. And they can't imagine in their minds how God would not answer his prayer that this cup be taken from me. So Jesus could not have died on the cross. If he did die on the cross, then God didn't answer his prayer. And how would God not answer the prayer of someone as good as Jesus, right? You can see where it's puzzling for them, right? Jesus' request being denied by God. But Jesus is not praying here to be freed from this obligation. He is expressing the greatness of the burden he will carry to his heavenly father. He's preparing for the jump. He's getting his mind ready for the jump. If Jesus' prayer was not something like this, if Jesus' prayer was instead something like this, okay, father, let's get this over with and get on to the resurrection because I got a lot of things I need to get done. Then we would think, was it really that big a deal? Is there really any sacrifice involved here at all? Was there really, did he really suffer even a little? If he's just like, yeah, let's get it over with. Come on. (laughs) It was a great suffering that he underwent. But Jesus is not trying to avoid the cross. And if you want to kind of get your your, perspective into what's going on in Jesus' mind, if you read in John chapter 12, verse 27, you hear him saying something similar to this about the cross. He says, now my soul is troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. This is why I became a man. This is why I was born in Bethlehem. This is why I stood up against Satan in a desert wilderness when he tempted me those three times. This is why I confronted the religious leadership. This is why I healed people. This is why I freed people from demons. This is why I fed 5,000. This is why I did all those things to come right to this moment when I am going to face the cross. He's not trying to get out of it. He is willingly, willingly facing the cross. His willingness has never been in question. You can trust him. Your Savior is ready. Your Savior is willing. And he is able. In fact, he alone is able. No one else could do what needed to be done. No one else could do what he did. Christianity is exclusive and inclusive all at the same time. It's exclusive in this, that only Jesus is able to save you 
It's inclusive in this. Whosoever will may come. The spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and let anyone come and drink freely from the river of the water of life. That's inclusive. But it's exclusive because the way you come is through the one who is able. Pluralism. Pluralism is kind of a a way of thinking, a philosophy that says there are many ways to God. And you hear people say this quite frequently. Someone said to me within the past couple of weeks, I was talking to someone along the road and they said to me, we're talking about church and so on. They said, well, you know, we're all going to the same place. You know, that's pluralism. Doesn't matter how you get there. You're going to get there. Where I heard this most frequently was when I was a student at the university. You'd hear it from professors. <laughs> that that PhD is teaching me statics and dynamics, an engineering course, and he's got to take a little bit of time to tell me that everybody's going to heaven because it doesn't matter how you get there. We're all on the same road. What? Really? How are you telling me that? And, and again, when I was the campus pastor for 10 years at the university, I heard that over and over again. But here's something I began to observe in that university setting. It wasn't the people who were devoted to their faith who believed that. It wasn't the people who were deeply committed who were pluralist. It was the people who had little to no faith who were pluralist. Often they were agnostic, not sure if there was a God or not. Sometimes they were atheistic, and they were atheistic. Let's think of the irony of that. Here's an atheist who is convinced in his heart there is no God, but he's making sure that everybody knows it doesn't matter what religion you are, you're all going to get to the same God. (laughs) What? Wait, what? Or it was people who were maybe on the fringe of Christian faith who were saying that. People who were religious in name more than anything else. People who were casual about their Christianity. You know, I, I... it just almost goes without saying that people who are casual about Christian faith can hardly speak with any authority regarding it. They just can't. Committed participants in major world religions, serious Muslims, dedicated Buddhists, practicing Jews, steadfast Hindus will all tell you that their way is the way. They are not pluralistic. Pluralism is assumed by people who are outside uncommitted. The Bible says there is one way to God. You find it. In fact, we read this just recently in John chapter 14. In verse 6, Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Peter says it in Acts chapter 4. When he's preaching there in Jerusalem, he says, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, I want to keep going here and help you think about something for a moment. This exclusivity of Christ, this bold pronunciation that he alone is able to save, isn't just some kind of random thing. Like he just decides he randomly is the only way. Nor is it some kind of ego trip where he's like, I want to be the only one. Don't like anybody else, just like me. It's not that he's trying to compete with Buddha or Muhammad. But rather, the practical reason that Jesus alone is the way 
is because Jesus alone is able. No one else died for your sins. No one else even claims to have died for your sins. He alone has died for your sins, and he alone is able to save. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.23 says, now, there have been many of those priests. So he's talking about priests that can connect you with, priests that can connect you with God. He says there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. God says, Jesus is able to save completely. He died for you. And because he was raised from the dead, he intercedes for you. He is ready. (laughs) He is willing. He is able. The cliche was right. God's got this. Christ has won the victory. I was listening to a speaker at Mahaffey Camp, family camp, a couple decades ago. Not even sure which speaker it was. But I remember something he said. He said that at his church, the way they begin every Sunday morning is the same every Sunday morning. The pastor says, God is good. And the people say, all the time. And the pastor says, all the time. And the people say, God is good. I thought, that's a pretty cool way to begin. And then he went on and he said something like this. You have to know that every Sunday, there are people standing there saying those words with a struggle. Every Sunday, there are people standing there who struggle to say those words because life is hard and because pain is real and because suffering is severe. And sometimes we worship with reservation. Okay, yeah, I'll worship God, but I am really struggling with. (laughs) He's right. We all get that, right? But communion reminds me, I can move past that. I can worship all out. I don't have to worship Christ with reservation. I can worship without reservation. Now, honestly, often I worship God just out of pure obedience. It is a sacrifice of praise for me at that moment, right? But communion says, Steve, you can worship God without reservation if you will trust him because he has won the victory. You know, when those early Christ followers got together in the book of Acts, they worshiped him. They celebrated what he had done. Acts 24, I'm sorry, Acts 2, 46 through 47 says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added daily to their number, daily, those who were being saved. You know, when they're eating together with glad and sincere hearts in their homes, is that a communion service they're having? I don't know. I don't know if it is, but I know what it is. It's worship. And they're worshiping him. And don't forget this. Even though he won the victory, He had just died on the cross a few weeks earlier. And even if you know you're coming back from the dead, you don't want to go hang on a cross anyway. I would want to avoid that. But they worshiped without reservation, wholeheartedly. 
they worshiped because the one they worshiped had at the cross defeated evil. They worshiped the one who through his death had advanced the kingdom of God in a way they never imagined. They worshiped the one who being lifted up drew all men to himself. Communion reminds us of that. Communion says to us, you can worship God. Even when you're hurting, you can worship him without reservation because he's the victor regardless of the circumstances around you. Christ has won the victory. We can worship without reservation. We proclaim in communion, we proclaim Christ without apology. The Apostle Paul is talking about the communion meal and he says, for whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes without apology. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, both the Jew and the Gentile. Nothing can prevent the proclamation of Christ. I want to kind of take you for a little scenic tour, if I could. I want to take you through the book of Acts, not all 28 chapters. We'll just move sequentially through some kind of amazing events that happened there. Uh, For example, as we begin in the book of Acts, the church is barely off the ground when Peter and John are arrested and brought before the religious council. And yet the church moves on. A couple chapters later, the church faces the infiltration of false people, hypocrites, Ananias and Sapphira, and yet the church moves on. By chapter 7 in the book of Acts, a leader, a really good leader who just gave a great sermon, is killed. He's stoned to death. He's murdered. And yet the church moves forward. There's wholesale seizures of people and their properties. Incarceration. And yet the church moves on. By chapter 11, there's division and concern about what do we do with the Gentiles? And it doesn't just come up there. It comes up again four chapters later. And still the church is not stopped. It moves on. James, who we just read about. It was Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. James, the brother of John, they called called the two of them the sons of thunder. I would like you to start calling me one of the sons of thunder. Can you do that, Drew? Sons of thunder. Yeah, that's who I want to be. He's dead. He's dead. James is executed by Herod in chapter 12. And yet the church moves on. A new leader shows up. A guy named Paul. (laughs) And he's doing a great job. But then, then in chapter 14, he's pummeled with stones. And left for dead. And yet the church moves on. There's a disagreement a chapter later between Paul, that great leader, and Barnabas, that other great leader. And it wasn't a small disagreement. It was a huge disagreement. It was such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. I'm just not going with you. Okay, have it your way then, buddy. They parted ways. Division right there among the key leaders in the church. And yet the church moves on. Rioting in Thessalonica. Rioting in Ephesus. All of it centering around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet this family of believers, this movement of God, this church continues to move on. 
And then that key leader, he's arrested. Trial after trial. Before the Sanhedrin. Before Governor Felix. Before Porcius Festus. Before King Agrippa. Trial, 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 trial. And yet the church just keeps moving forward. Shipwreck. And yet this body, this family keeps moving forward. Snake bite that would have certainly been fatal. Everyone kind of sits back and says, let's see, let's watch this guy die. He doesn't. And this church of God continues to move on. You see that? You you cannot stop what God wants to do. And the church is proclaimed without apology. And it overcomes every resistance because Christ has won the victory and he drinks it anew with us in his Father's kingdom. Here at communion, we can worship without reservation. We can proclaim the rule of Christ without apology because nothing will stop it. And we can walk in freedom without fear. Without fear. (laughs) We're free from worry because Christ is always ready. We're, We're free to worship because Christ is always willing and we're free, we're free to trust because he always intercedes for us. He is the victor. There's a song they sing about him in heaven. Did you know that? In the entire book of Revelation, the first time any singing shows up that I've been able to discern is in chapter five. It's in heaven. And there... The the elders, the creatures who are around the throne, they sing to this victor and they sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God and they will reign with you on earth. You have been purchased. You sitting here in Clearfield County or wherever you're seated, you have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And you can walk in freedom without fear, without worry, because Christ is the victor. (laughs) Are you worried? You really don't need to be. Cliche as it may sound, God's got this. You know why a cliche is a cliche. You hear somebody say, God's got this. You say, yeah, mom was always saying that. You know why mom always said it? Because it was true. Because it was true. Christ is prepared for whatever is ahead of you. He is willing to face it with you and even for you. And he is able to carry your burden. As we celebrate communion today, We celebrate his victory for us. Would you bow your heart with me in prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we think of what you have done for us, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. When we think of the sacrifice you made for us, when we think of the 
action that you took on our behalf. It is amazing to us. And, and maybe something almost as amazing as that is how often we fail to allow that to affect our here and now in life. I can almost imagine, God, sometimes you must look at us and say, what do I have to do to prove to you that I love you? What do I have to prove to you? What do I have to do to prove to you that you don't have to worry? What do I have to do to prove to you that I am ready, willing, and able not just to carry your burdens, but to carry you? I can almost imagine you saying that, God, because you have done more than we could hope for, above what we could ask or think. We love you for that. As we celebrate communion, we do so with hearts that are so filled with thanksgiving. May they overflow with thanksgiving and with trust. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take your cup. If you're at home, you can get your your bread first, I should say. And as you know, there's a very thin film that you need to pull off first. And if you accidentally pulled a thick one off first, I got two words for you. Good luck. Okay? And take that bread and hold that in your hand, if you would. Looking for where the microphone is. So... I need an elder. Oh, there, Josh has a microphone. Great, Josh. So, Josh, in a moment, I'll ask you to pray for the bread. And uh, do you have a second elder in mind, Josh? How about if uh, the uh, Reverend Evilsizer prays for the cup then? Okay, that's great. So that what you have in your hand represents the body of Christ. And I just want you to think for a minute. Sometimes we take this so often that it becomes cliché. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, oh, it's communion. Yeah, sure be glad when we're done with these little tasteless wafers. <laughs> Don't go there. Think for a moment about the significance of the gift. He didn't say those words, if this cup can pass by me, for any other reason except this was a heavy burden he bore, your sin and mine. And he bore it willingly. So that what you have in your hand is something to treasure, something to celebrate, something to praise God for, the body of Christ. I'm going to ask Josh if he would pray a prayer of thanksgiving and celebration for what we have been given at the cross. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing gift. Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you for thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. That was perfect. The body of Christ. As real as that matter is in your mouth, 
as real as the way it's sticking to your teeth may be. (laughs) That is how real God's care for you is, his love for you. Even more real is God's care for you. I'm going to ask Reverend Evil Sizer if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the cup, and then we'll take it together. Jim? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect plan of redemption. We thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood on the cross. Because of that, our sins are removed from us as far as the east as from the west. Never, never, never to be remembered again. And we are grateful, and we give you our thanks today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. So if you'd like to open the cup, you've probably learned by now, don't squeeze it while you open it. This represents the blood of Christ. Let's take it together. 